you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to James chapter 5. We're continuing our exposition through this letter from James to the scattered, persecuted believers. James chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. Before we get into God's word, let's uh, say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for who you are. Thank you that you've revealed yourself, given us your word, that we can know you, that we can know the message of salvation, that we can know the true condition of our sinful hearts, that we can look to you, find forgiveness, and find hope, and find salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. It's to him that we pray. Amen. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 reads, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Title this message, The Priority of Prayer. The Priority of Prayer. And some of you may have heard this passage preached before, and you may know already that there's a lot of different interpretations of these verses It can be taken out of context very easily. It can apply or be translated, interpreted again in many different ways. And what I want to do is look to what the text says and then hopefully help all of us to understand, based upon what it says, what it means, what the author intended it for it to say and mean before we can apply it to our lives. And so this may be a sermon with more information in terms of the language that's been used in the Greek and different words and how it's been used in different places in Scripture. Uh, but this is not going to be just a informational data dump as well. We, we need to understand what it says before we can properly apply it because that is what the Lord wants us to do in, in terms of seeking His Word and knowing how to apply it to our lives. So first we'll get to what it says, what it means, and then we'll try to apply it to our lives. So James is about growing into Christian maturity. He wants us to become more like Christ. He's speaking to believers who have been saved by the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's not speaking to unbelievers, trying to tell them you have to obey these commands in order to be saved. No, he's saying because you're saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, now your life is different. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Your affections, your heart, your desires are now different, and you will obey out of a heart of love and worship because you want to not because it's a burden or because you're being told to or because you need to do it in order to keep your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're eternally secure in Christ. You look to his grace and mercy, and because of that, you worship him out of love. You want to worship your Lord and Savior. He wants believers to demonstrate and display and prove that they possess a genuine saving faith in their daily lives and in every area of their lives. He provides command after command to help believers as a grace of God to know how to live out and obey the will of God for their lives. He calls us to look to heavenly wisdom, 
to know the truth of God's word and to live it out in everyday life. In the area of, James has talked about trials and temptations. In the area of our responses to hearing the word of God. In the area of our love and relationships, how we treat one another. Are we showing partiality? Are we showing mercy and love to those in need? In the area of our perspective of life, how do we view life? In the area of our response to suffering and persecution. And in the area of our speech. And in chapter 5, verse 12, which we looked at last week, we learned that our speech should be straightforward, consistent, dependable, trustworthy all the time, so we don't need to swear or make oaths to support or verify what we are saying. A simple yes or no will do. Honest, straightforward speech all the time. To do so, to make an oath or swear, would be to undermine the sovereignty of God, to question our own integrity and character, and to reveal hypocrisy within our own hearts and to invite God's judgment. God is truth and communicates truth, and he wants his people to be people of truth and people who communicate truth and truthfully. He calls us to be trustworthy truth-tellers. Now James will shift from stressing speaking the truth to others in everyday speech to speaking the truth to God in prayer in all circumstances. The focus in these verses is on prayer. The focus of these verses is on prayer, and we can't miss that in light of this passage that's difficult to interpret. If you follow along, starting in verse 13, notice the emphasis on prayer. I'll read it again. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises, which is another form of prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Verse 18, then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The emphasis here is on prayer, is on prayer, and we can't miss that. James wants our lives to be marked by prayer, by an attitude, an act of dependence upon God, of faith that works praise because it trusts in God's sovereignty and providence. So are you a man of prayer? Are you a woman of prayer? Is your life saturated with communion and communication with your Heavenly Father? Are you people who pray? Spurgeon said, quote, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the leaders of the church are to devote themselves to prayer. Prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer is listed first there. It's been said, quote, Satan laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. He knows he's no match when the people of God pray to a sovereign God and God works through them and through their lives to accomplish God's will. James says in chapter 1, verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and will be given to him. This is the grace of God in our lives, that he's given us through the death and blood of his Son, access to him to pray, to pray. And he says that he'll 
grant us wisdom when we come to him, praying in faith. We must be people of prayer. We must be dependent upon him. And so in these verses, James calls believers to pray in all circumstances, and he also gives specific instructions for specific individuals and for the church so that we would recognize the priority and power of prayer. So first in verse 13, we'll see prayer and praise. Prayer and praise, verse 13. Again, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. No matter what the circumstance, no matter how you feel, from suffering to joy, look to God. Sing to God. Pray to God. This is to be a lifestyle of prayer and praise. In fact, these are two imperative commands given in this verse. Pray, first imperative command. Second one is sing praises. This is something we do in obedience to God, something that's to characterize our lives. This is what we are to do in obedience and love for the Lord. Suffering here refers to the result of external circumstances. External circumstances. It's used in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, where Paul says, I suffer hardship. It's that same word. I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul is suffering hardship bound in chains in prison, and he says that the word of God, the gospel, is not imprisoned, and it will continue to spread. It's also used in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, where Paul charges Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine and will turn away their ears from the truth. And then he says, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Same word again for suffering used in in James chapter 5, verse 13. This is a normal part of the Christian life. There will be difficult things that come your way because of your faithfulness to Christ. Because of your faithfulness to Christ. And we are supposed to endure them patiently, sober-mindedly, to think clearly about them from God's perspective and pray. And pray. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he is to pray. He must pray. Then he goes on, is anyone cheerful? Again, this is a life of prayer, no matter what is happening, whether you're suffering or cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Cheerful means to be of good courage. And the Greek word used for seeing praises is the verb which the noun translated psalm derives. That tells us that psalms are songs of praise to God, the King. And they are also a form of prayer. And so the command here is that in times of good cheer and courage, sing praises to God. Now, this doesn't mean that that's the only time we're to sing praises to God is when we're of good courage and cheerful and happy and encouraged in the Lord. This is just a command to to pray and sing in joy. But again, that doesn't tell us that we shouldn't when we're downcast or when we're suffering as well. We know that when we sing the truth about God, it encourages our souls. And so we are to sing and pray at all times as this command tells us to do. The point here is that whether you are in chains for the gospel or if you are encouraged in the gospel, in any and all circumstances, suffering or joy, look to the Lord and pray. Depend upon Him and praise Him. So let me ask, how are you doing now? How is the Lord working in your life now, sovereignly ordaining whatever is happening, whatever circumstances you're going through? 
there's a reason to pray. There's a reason to pray. Whether you're joyful right now, suffering, cheerful, sad, there's a reason to pray and praise the Lord. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a song that says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. We are to pray in all circumstances, whether in suffering or joy. Pray and praise the Lord. So first we saw prayer and praise in verse 13. Secondly, in verses 14 through 15, this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time. Verses 14, 15, we'll see prayer and protection. Prayer and protection. Again, James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Again, we have to remember the focus here. It's on prayer. It's on prayer. And here it refers to the one who is sick, which we will define, and what they are to do, and what the elders of the church are to do, and what the Lord will do. All of those things are contained here in verses 14 and 15. And there's a lot of questions related to these verses What does sick mean? Verse 14. What does sick mean in verse 15? Does it refer to someone who is physically sick or spiritually sick or weak? What is the significance of anointing with oil? What is its purpose? Is it medicinal? Is it metaphorical? Is it symbolic? Is this sickness a result of unrepentant sin? Will this person always be restored and healed? Does it depend upon the faith of the person praying? How do you know if a particular word is used this way or that way? And many more questions. So to start to understand these verses, we first have to understand what it says before we can get into what it means and how it applies. And for some verses, it's more helpful than others as you look to the translation in your hands to know the original languages because they help you identify parts of speech and how it is used. And because most of you probably don't have a Greek Bible in front of you, let me help you. Verse 13, he must pray. That is a present imperative command. This is what you must do in obedience to the Lord. It's how we worship him. Again, verse 13, he must pray is a is an imperative command. Again, in verse 13, sing praises is a present active imperative command. Again, something we do as a lifestyle, as a pattern of our lives. Verse 14, he must call, referring to the one who is sick. Again, an imperative command. This is a definite act of calling the elders to oneself. The sick person is to call the elders, a command. Again, in verse 14, pray, referring to the elders that the sick person calls for. 
The elders are to pray, imperative command, which stresses the urgency in which this is to be done. The elders, once they're called by this sick person, is to go urgently and pray for them. Verse 15, no imperatives, no imperative commands, but indicatives, indicatives. These are statements of fact. This is unchanging truth. This is reality. Verse 16, confess, present imperative command, and pray, present imperative command. So verse 13, 14, and 16 contain imperative commands, things we must do in obedience to the Lord out of love for him. But verse 15 has no imperative commands, just indicatives. This is what is true. These are the promises of God that we can hold on to and believe. And even that impacts how we respond. So we can take note of what the imperatives are, what the indicatives are. And notice that even just from this initial reading of what it says, no one is called to heal. No one is called to heal. Nothing here speaks of the gifts of healing. There's no command given to believers to heal, but rather to pray. To pray because no one can heal but God if it's his will to. Also, anointing with oil is not an imperative command. It's not a command, but praying is. We have to keep the main things, the main things. And another thing we, as we read these verses to understand what it says, it doesn't say what the cause of the sickness is. It doesn't say what the cause of the sickness is. Verse 15 says, and if, conditional, if he has committed sins. So this is not necessarily sickness as a result of sin. It may be, it may not be, but you cannot say that it is as a result of sin or unrepentant sin. Again, it might be, it might not be. Another thing we have to remember is the context of what James has been teaching. He has been addressing believers who are suffering and facing persecution and mistreatment, and he calls them to patiently endure, knowing that the coming of the Lord is near, and that he will judge both their oppressors in a judgment of condemnation and them in a judgment of commendation, and so they are to continue to stand firm and look to the word and to the example of the prophets and know who the Lord is and also to be careful how they respond and speak, that their speeches be trustworthy and consistent even when faced with persecution and trials. With all of that in mind, who is James referring to when he says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is he referring to a believer who is physically sick or to a believer who is spiritually sick? Well, we have to look at how this word is used. The word sick in verse 14 is the Greek word astaneo, astaneo. The word has an alpha privative, ah, before the word. And the root of that word, astaneo, stenao, which means to strengthen. It means to strengthen. And if you put an alpha privative or an alpha prefix in front of it, it means the opposite of that. And so it means weak or to lack strength. It means weak or to lack strength referring either to lacking physical strength or to lacking spiritual strength. That's why this word can mean physically sick or spiritually weak. The word is used 34 times in the New Testament. 20 times it refers to physically sick. 14 times it refers to spiritually weak. In the Gospels and Acts, it predominantly refers to someone who is physically sick. In the Epistles, it predominantly refers to someone who is spiritually weak. 
For example, Paul uses this word in Romans 14 to describe the believer who is weak in faith, who doesn't have a full understanding of their freedom and Christian liberties in, in Christ. Based upon the use of the word, it's hard to tell which one it is. It could be spiritually weak, as it's most often used in the epistles, or it could be physically sick, as it's most often used in the Gospels and Acts. And you could, knowing James to be the half-brother of Jesus, you could lean towards how it's used in the Gospels. Because the majority of the teaching that James has heard and grown up hearing is from Jesus. But what is the key factor in determining how a word is being used? That's an important question. What is the key factor in determining how a word is being used? Not just in scripture, but just in any book you pick up, any article or, or, or blog post you read. It's context. Context. Notice in verse 15, which is in the context of these verses, the word sick comes up again. It comes up again. And you would think that James would use the same Greek word as he did in verse 14, asaneo, but he uses a different word, kamno. Camno, which can mean to be sick or to be weary. So how does that help us? Why did James switch up the word and translate it as sick in both places? Well, that word is used only two other times in the New Testament. Only two other times. And we have to ask, does it refer to someone who is physically sick or to someone who is spiritually weak? Again, we're trying to answer that question. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For consider him... Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How is, how is it being used there? In a physical sense or a spiritual sense? A spiritual sense. He's encouraging believers in how not to grow spiritually weary or weak. And it's also used in Revelation 2, verse 3. In reference to the false teachers, he writes to the church in Ephesus, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. How is it being used there? Again, in a physical sense or a spiritual sense? And again, it's used in a spiritual sense. He's saying that the believers didn't grow spiritually weary or weak. They persevered and endured for Christ's sake. So in every instance that word sick, the second time it's used in verse 15, camno is used, it's used in a spiritual sense. So based upon that and other contextual indicators, which we'll get into, this is referring to a believer who is spiritually weak. This is referring to a believer who is spiritually weak. The suffering James has in view contextually is from these believers who are facing persecution and mistreatment, not physical illness. Not physical illness. He's addressing those who have become spiritually weak and have grown weary as a result of the suffering that they were experiencing. They are exhausted, defeated, in despair, depleted spiritually, and they need comfort. They need encouragement. This is a spiritually weak person from dealing with trials and persecution and the sin that often accompanies it. They're having a hard time dealing with the constant trials and persecution that they're in the midst of, and it's causing them to become spiritually weak in the Lord. And they need comfort. They need encouragement. They need the Lord. And so... This is the meaning used in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, where Paul implores the Lord three times that the thorn in his flesh might leave him. And the Lord said, that's not a physical thorn, that's a spiritual feeling based upon outside forces, perhaps false teachers that were trying to, trying to oppose his apostleship and his teaching. 
says there, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, as the nail, then I am strong. When spiritually weak, you are made strong and the power and strengthening grace of God is put on display through your life. That's the will of God. Second Corinthians 11, verse 29. Again, who is weak without my being weak? In both those instances of weak, ask the nail. Again, the same word. And then verse 29 continues. Who is led into sin without my intense concern, Paul says. This is Paul defending his apostleship and demonstrating his love and care for the saints in the churches that he was visiting. There's people who are downcast in the church and who are led into sin, and it weighed on him. Paul felt the same things that those believers felt as they were falling into sin, as they were becoming downcast from the persecution, the trials they were facing, and it caused him intense emotional pain. Just as it does with the elders here, when we hear of those who are spiritually weary and weak in the faith and who are led or fall into sin as a result. As under-shepherds, we feel that too. And that's what Paul is saying in Second Corinthians eleven twenty nine: Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? This is a believer who is spiritually weary, someone who is spiritually weak and they need comfort and encouragement. This word certainly does refer to physical sickness, But here in this context, it refers to the person who is spiritually worn down, the person who feels overwhelmed by the world and their circumstances. And that at times can be connected to physical sickness, and other times it might not be. But we need to understand that that is not an acceptable excuse before the Lord either way. Because of this or that going on in my life, whether physical sickness or spiritual weakness, Therefore, I have an excuse before the Lord. No, the Lord demands and requires your love. He requires the proper response to what is working out in your life. He requires us to continue to be faithful, continue to stand for Him, continue to live our lives as a pleasing sacrifice to Him, an act of worship, no matter what is happening. We learn that in James chapter 1, how these trials that come our way, we face them, It's how you view them. It's how you respond to them. And you can respond rightly and consider it joy as you think about who God is and what he's doing and what he's accomplishing, perfecting you, maturing you through it, helping you to endure the the weight of those trials, to strengthen you so that when other trials come, you can endure them and continue to endure them. Or you can respond in a way that doesn't honor the Lord and those Trials, those external trials, then become internal temptations to sin. For you to get caught up in what's happening, lose sight of who the Lord is and what he's doing, and then there's a temptation to be lured by the the world or even what Satan is doing and manipulating your thoughts and causing you to stumble. And so you sin, you complain, you doubt, you may perhaps blame God, which is why James says no one can blame God for their sin. Sin arises from your own heart your own sinful desires. And when it gives birth, it leads to death. Leads to death. And so trials refine you. They refine the believer. Temptations weaken you. Trials lead to Christ-likeness. Temptations lead you to sin. 
Trials give you confidence. Temptations give you doubt. And this is a process. This is a process. It's usually never that clear cut. Some days you could be facing that trial and you find joy in the Lord. You recognize his sovereignty and his providence working for your good and his glory. Other days you might wake up and, man, this same trial is really weighing down on me. It's causing me to to stress and doubt and grow weary. And so it's never that clear cut. And over time it can cause you to feel very weak and spiritually downcast, be in despair. As it may have been with these scattered believers who are facing trials and persecution, James didn't want them to be discouraged in the Christian life. And so James encourages them and comforts them to keep going, to be patient, to stand firm, to endure, to be steadfast, to know who the Lord is and that he is coming soon and he will make everything right. And so it would be appropriate that James now cause those who are spiritually weak to seek even more comfort and encouragement, not just from what James has already written, but also from the elders of their local congregations. James says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. This is an imperative command, and notice who it is for. The burden of this is on the spiritually weak person, It's a command for the spiritually weak person to obey and heed. He or she is the call for the elders. In other words, you have to tell the elders if this is where you are spiritually. If this is where you are spiritually, tell the elders so that they can pray over you. In other words, you have to tell the elders where you are. Now, if this was a physically sick person, it's likely that the elders would already be aware of it. They can see it. And furthermore, the elders would have been given, the elders have been given delegated authority to oversee the spiritual care of the flock of God. That's why they go to the elders. It's a spiritual matter. And so call for the elders who oversee your spiritual care. Notice not a call for the physicians here or medical doctors or to look to worldly philosophies or worldly wisdom. When it pertains and comes to spiritual matters, you can find the solution in the all-sufficient, trustworthy word of God. He must call for the elders, and what are the elders to do? There's another command given. They are commanded to pray over the spiritually weak brother or sister. And then James adds, not as a command, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Another question, what is the significance of anointing with oil in the name of the Lord? And again, there have been many interpretations as to what this may mean and how it's to be used and administered. It's been abused by the Roman Catholic Church, where it's a sacrament, an extreme unction, that when someone is on their deathbed, deathbed, a priest would come and put oil on the head of that person and perform a ritual, and by doing so would supposedly remove their sins and prepare that person for the next life. But notice that verse 15 says, it's the prayer offered in faith that has effect, not the ritual itself. And James says the purpose is to restore or save the one who is spiritually weak, whereas this sacrament was performed right at the point of death. And so that's not it. That's not it. In Scripture, we find that anointing with oil was used for the consecration of persons or things for God's use and service, such as priests or kings or temple furnishings. 
They were consecrated, set aside for God's use and purpose. It can be used to refer to a, a physical act, as in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, where the 12 disciples went out and it says that they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them, referring to physical healing and the physical act of applying the oil, anointing, can also be used as, as a metaphor of setting apart, as in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus enters the synagogue, he's handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and there it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It's used metaphorically. Oil was used for medicinal purposes, as in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, in the story of the Good Samaritan to care for the man who was beaten up. His wounds were bandaged and oil and wine were poured onto it to help it heal. Oil is also used metaphorically as in Psalm 23, verse 5, where it carries the idea of covering or washing, and it's associated with blessing and healing. In Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6, David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. David is expressing God's spiritual restoration of him in the midst of what he was facing. So again, context and how this word is used, will, the context will determine how anointing with oil in the name of the Lord should be interpreted. In the name of the Lord means according to who the Lord is. It's his being, it's his essence. It's whatever, what's according to his will. And we'll, we'll get back to that. But first, based upon the context and the way that anointing with oil is used in scripture, here, the elders are to pray over the spiritually weak person as they call for the elders of the church. This implying that they've already confessed their sins before the Lord. And then they come and call for the elders to pray over them. So they are to pray over the spiritually weak person, which will be that act itself of the elders praying over the spiritually weak person will be like they are being covered and washed with oil in a spiritually restorative sense, in a way that would comfort and encourage their souls from within to respond rightly and continue to persevere and endure through what they are facing and what's causing them to become spiritually weak. So I take this to be metaphorical of the spiritual work that the Lord works within the person through the act of the elders praying over them. As as the Lord sets aside this person and the elders pray over them for this specific purpose of strengthening them up spiritually. The next verse, verse 15, verse 15 has been used and abused as well by so-called faith healers to teach that all physically sick, all physically sick Christians will get healed or that they themselves, they themselves have the power to heal. But is that what the text is saying? Is that what it's saying? Immediately we can take note of the end of verse 15 that says, the Lord will raise him up. The Lord will raise him up. Also remember that verse 15 has no imperatives, no commands for what the believers are to do or the elders are to do. No imperatives, no commands, but rather contains indicatives, letting us know that this will happen. It will happen. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Indicatives. This is true. Notice that if James was speaking of physical sickness, then the verse is saying that the prayer offered in faith will always guarantee healing of the physically sick. 
And we know that's not the case. There's times where physically sick Christians are prayed over and they're healed, and there's other times where physically sick Christians are prayed over and they're not. They're not. But because this is referring to a spiritually weak believer, it is consistent with the will of God that he would spiritually strengthen a weak believer. Therefore, pray in faith in the name of the Lord, because it's according to his will, because he will restore and raise up the spiritually weak, whereas we cannot say that it is the will of God to physically heal sickness all the time. Does he do it? Yes. Can he do it? Yes. But does he do it all the time? No, he doesn't. The Greek word used for restore, or some of your translations might say save in verse 15, can either refer to being delivered from physical distress or spiritual distress. Again, which one do you pick? Here, it means to restore the spiritually weak to spiritual wholeness. And when it says that the Lord will raise him up, that means to awaken or to arouse them back to spiritual vitality and health. And again, indicatives, this will happen. You, ha- you can have confidence that if you are a physically or a spiritually sick and weak in the faith, you've confessed your sins before the Lord, you call for the elders of the church to pray over you, and they pray over you in faith, knowing who the Lord is, according to his will, that you would be spiritually strengthened. This will happen. You will be spiritually restored and lifted up to spiritual vitality again. What else is true in verse 15? James adds, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Why does he talk about sin? Why does he bring it up? Because it's not an uncommon or unscriptural thing to associate spiritual weakness with sin in your life. That's why James says with the condition, if he has committed sins. In other words, they are to evaluate their hearts and their lives to see if they are living in sin. We don't know if it's the result of sin. It might be, it might not be. Is this because of sin or because of God's providence? We don't know. And so you do confess your sins and have confidence that they are forgiven. It's an expression, it's an expression of your submission and trust in the Lord, a drawing near to the Lord. If you are spiritually weak, James says, and James commands, pray. Confess and repent of all known sins. And we are to be doing that anyways. We are to be doing that anyways as a protection over our lives. Prayer and protection. Notice that we are responsible to obey these commands given in these verses. But notice who it is that sovereignly works. Notice who it is that sovereignly works. The prayer offered in faith is offered to who? The Lord. Who will raise him up? The Lord. If he has committed sins, who will forgive them? The Lord. He is preserving and sustaining and protecting us by his grace in which we now stand. You are not forgiven because the elders prayed over you, but because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has laid down his righteous life in your place and bore the full wrath of God as your substitute to satisfy and cover all your sins and resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures to demonstrate his power over sin, death, and Satan, that through repentance and faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, you are saved, forgiven, 
justified fully and completely as you are being progressively sanctified by his Holy Spirit through your obedience. Suffering can come as a result of your own sin. We know that. It can be the result of the loving discipline of your Heavenly Father. We learn about that in Hebrews. It could be the result of another person's sin. It could be the result of doing the will of God as we saw with the prophets and with Job. He was doing the will of God. The prophets spoke in the name of the Lord and they faced suffering. And as we see in the life of Jesus himself, perfectly obeying the Father's will, which included suffering. Whatever the cause, our responses matter. Whatever the cause, our responses matter. And part of the response that James calls and commands us to is to pray. To pray and to confess and repent, not knowing if the spiritual weakness is directly related to sin or not. But as believers, we should hate sin. We should flee from temptation. We should pursue righteousness. It's growing and pursuing holiness, turning from that which dishonors the Lord, turning towards the the Lord in faith and obedience, seeking purity of life, seeking to grow in Christ-likeness. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 and 30, as we think about communion this afternoon, says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This is the consequence of sin, not confessing sin, not being right with their brothers and sisters in Christ, the unity and purity of the church. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We don't know the reason, and it doesn't matter if we don't know. What matters is that we respond rightly, that we trust and depend upon the Lord, and that will be demonstrated in a life of prayer and dependence upon Him. This is the importance of daily confession and repentance in the life of the believer. But that is not all that James is concerned about. He's not only thinking of the benefit to the spiritually weak brother or sister, but also how this is a benefit and blessing to all believers. Notice lastly in verse 16, prayer and purity, prayer and purity. Verse 16, again, James gives us two other imperative commands. Confess your sins to one another. First command, second command, pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? Why? So that you may be healed. And because the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In light of what he just said, the beginning of verse 16 says, Therefore, therefore, because we are to pray in all circumstances, and the one who is spiritually weak is to call for the elders to pray over him, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is spiritually sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, therefore, make sure that you are pursuing holiness by confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another because prayer and purity go together. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's part of sanctification. It strengthens not only your individual life, but the body in which you're placed into. It affects your relationship with your brothers and sisters. As you become more sanctified, you have a 
greater impact. You become more like Christ. So we should always be confessing our sins, first and foremost, to the Lord. And then to those who we sin against or who are directly involved or impacted. And we are even to confess, I'm going to say, some of our sins with one another so that others can pray for us too. Now there's wisdom, there's discernment with what you share and how much you share, but there should also be honesty. There should also be humility. There should also be an openness. We're called the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We really have nothing to hide. We're all forgiven sinners. We understand grace. We understand our sinfulness. We understand how the Lord works. And so why are we ashamed if we continue to sin? Because we will. There's no reason to hide that we're still sinners. It just magnifies God's grace. It helps our brothers and sisters to come alongside us. It strengthens the church. It creates closer relationships. And so we confess our sins to one another. We pray for one another. Because when we're confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, we will be strengthened. We will be strengthened, and our prayers will be according to God's will. He wants his people to be sanctified. He wants his people to be pure. That comes through confessing and praying. So the phrase in verse 16, so that you may be healed, again, can have a physical or spiritual connotation. And based upon the context and consistency and meaning of words being translated and used here, James uses it to refer to God's forgiveness of sins and the ongoing practical experience of that helps the believer to be comforted and reminded of God's grace and who he is. And thus it brings spiritual healing because of the positional standing of being fully and completely forgiven and justified in Christ. It has a spiritual meaning here as well. It's used in 1 Peter 2.24 where it says, Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we were healed. We were healed. Confessing our sins and praying for one another purifies and it sanctifies. It also impacts our prayers. It impacts our prayers. James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Effective is the word energeo, which sounds like energy because it's from where we get energy, meaning that it works. It works. And the word accomplish means to have power. means to have power. The prayer of a righteous man works and has power because he or she is praying according to God's will. And ultimately, it's God's will at work through your prayers. A righteous man would be one who is characterized by living and obeying the will of God in their lives. There's nothing special about him or her. They are just a man. They are just a woman faithfully following and obeying the Lord, their master. And we'll see this next week in verse 17. Again, highlighting that this is just a man and this is just a woman. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was a prophet. He did many things. But what's highlighted here? He was a man. A pastor or elder is just 
a man that God uses as a means to fulfill his purposes for his glory, to the benefit of the church. Just as prayer is a means that God uses to fulfill his perfect will in a way that allows his people to participate and trust and depend and see God at work. This is praying in faith that James talked about in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. He must ask in faith without any doubting. Without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is where confession and prayer come in. It causes you to not doubt in the Lord, but to draw near to him and to trust in him and to depend upon him, to reorient your thoughts and your mind towards the truth of his word, allowing the spirit to work and encourage your soul. First John 5.14 says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. And so the prayers of the righteous would be for the will of God to be done. It would be aligned with God and his will. It has great power because they look to and depend upon God in prayer and look to God's power to accomplish his own will in and through their lives. Therefore, we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we would be spiritually strengthened because that is God's will for us. And if we pray in this way, in faith, it is effective and powerful because it is aligned with what God has said. And this will also help us from potentially getting to such a low point spiritually as we are built up and edified by one another daily and weekly. You see how the Christian life is not one of isolation. It's not one of living on your own. The lone Christian does not make sense. You've been placed in a body. You have brothers and sisters that are to help strengthen you in the faith so that you do not grow spiritually weary, that you're not allowed to continue in sin if you are in sin and reach this low point. So again, Do you have a life of prayer? Is your life characterized by one of dependence and trust in the Lord? Do you recognize the priority and the power of prayer? As you pray according to his will, your will will become more aligned to his will as you study and look to his word, and you will see his will being done as you pray. God promises to care for us, to cleanse us, to conform us, to keep us, and restore us, even when we are spiritually exhausted and defeated, especially when we are weak, especially when we are weak, because he will make us strong and display his grace and power in and through our lives. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The good work he began in us, he will complete and perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. This is to be the prayer of and for the spiritually weak brother or sister. But we know that there can oftentimes be a connection between physical sickness and spiritual weariness. And that the physically sick may or may not be healed. But what this passage is teaching as a comfort and encouragement to believers who are facing persecution and suffering and it was wearing on them spiritually is that what always happens is that the spiritually weak are made strong. 
and the spiritually and the spiritual strengthening will help you to endure the physical suffering if that is what you are experiencing as well. If you rely on physical healing to help you spiritually, God has not promised that. God has not promised that. God has promised that if you are spiritually weak, he will strengthen you. And if you are physically suffering, knowledge of who he is and his spiritual strengthening will help you have the right perspective in responding rightly to your physical pain. We also see here the blessings and benefits of mutual honesty and mutual confession. Obedience to God in these commands will help believers from isolating themselves again. And if if they are living in sin, from continuing on and becoming spiritually weakened and overwhelmed by it, we see the need here for one another. We see the need here for one another. The need to be connected to the body. The need to confess. The need to pray earlier than later to help provide spiritual truth and strength to encourage victory over sin and to promote hope and confidence in the forgiveness of sins which we will be forgiven of and have been forgiven of. Faith strengthens faith again. How do you respond to difficulties and suffering? Different people respond differently. For some, as trials come, or or persecution comes, they're able to stand firm. They're able to trust in the sovereignty of God over their lives without any doubting, without wavering, and for others as they face difficulties and suffering. God uses it differently in their life to grow them and sanctify them and refine them, and they may struggle more with it. They may become weakened in their faith. They may cause them to doubt. And so you see this variation within the body of how people respond to difficulties and suffering, which again highlights why we need one another and why you cannot be alone. We need one another. You need the spiritually strong brother or sister who's able to endure the trial to come alongside the weak brother or sister to help them. A living faith is a praying faith, whether in confession or praise or trust. It's an active dependence upon God in all circumstances. This gives the believer confidence and assurance in Christ of the power of God to preserve and keep them and continually sustain and strengthen and restore as God is working to grow and mature and sanctify. This is consistent with the focus of James' letter to call and encourage believers to grow into Christian maturity as the Lord works out in our lives through our obedience what he's working within by his spirit thus displaying a faith that works, a faith that works, a faith that trusts, a faith that depends upon the Lord, a saving faith, a saving faith. This is to characterize our lives, a faith that works, a faith that responds rightly in all circumstances, a faith that prays and depends upon the Lord. And notice that when going through trials, suffering, persecution, James calls us to the word of God, chapter 5, verse 10 and to prayer, because the word and prayer help us to see more of the Lord and who he is, and it causes us to trust and depend upon him more. And don't miss the context in which this is taking place, the church body. He says, brethren, among you, call for the elders of the church, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 
This is the context in which all of this is happening. The word and prayer and the church. God uses even our times of spiritual weakness not only to strengthen us and strengthen his church, but also to display his glory as we trust and depend upon him. God is always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose to conform them into the image of Christ. If you are suffering, pray. If you are cheerful, pray. If you are spiritually weak and weary, call for the elders so they can pray. We are all to confess our sins and pray. We pray because we worship a sovereign, trustworthy God who gives us hope in the midst of the most difficult trials and suffering and persecution. Second Corinthians 4, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, meaning perpetually as a, as a state of life. You can get out of that despair. The Lord will strengthen you spiritually, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says in Romans, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What encouragement and comfort this is to believers that we can pray at all times and receive spiritual strengthening. Romans 15, verse 13, I'll close with this verse. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the priority and power of prayer in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. Are we people of prayer? Is our faith demonstrated by how much and how often and how much we depend upon the Lord in prayer? And as we pray according to his word and according to his will, we can know with absolute confidence that his will will be done. And more so in our lives as we're sinful and weak to see spiritual strengthening to the glory of God and his power and grace on display for all to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Pray that your spirit would grant us understanding, illumine our minds and our hearts Plant your word down deep in us that it may bear much fruit as we go through this life knowing and expecting trials and suffering and persecution and how it can weigh on us and cause us to doubt and spiritually weaken us to know that we have your word, that we have access to you to depend upon you, to trust you, to know that as we pray, as we obey your commands, these gifts of grace in our lives, through the lives of our brothers and sisters, the church that you've placed us in, that you will restore us. You will raise us up. You will allow us, by your preserving grace, to persevere and to endure all the way to glory. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.